Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Next year is going to be an ugly election year in which you can expect very little to get done. The debt ceiling has become a pernicious political tool which doesn't help either party. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We're confident at the end of the day that the Senate is going to put American families first. 330 million Americans are expecting and waiting for us to move the ball forward and get stuff done. And when that doesn't happen, it is frustration. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's the fastest hour in politics, and we are not slowing down between now and the end of this year. We're just having too much fun here inside the bubble, right? This hour, we survey the landscape in a gray and chilly Washington today with insights on the Biden agenda and how it might play against the backdrop of the midterm elections with Bill Hoagland, senior vice president at the Bipartisan Policy Center, longtime operative on Capitol Hill. He'll be with us in just a moment. Later, we'll explore the geopolitical stories that help define the Biden administration's foreign policy this year. A lot of them are tough. And we'll take a look at what that might mean about the year ahead with Bill Ferries, Bloomberg's national security team leader here in the nation's capital. And we start this hour with breaking news from Delaware, Rehoboth Beach. It's, of course, where President Biden is spending the rest of this week with family and where he will ring in the new year. No, we don't have any word on the Fed here, but they did lift the lid on news. It got everyone's attention, a big fire drill here inside the Beltway, and for good reason. I can now tell you that the president went for a walk today on the beach. Now, Democrats may need a visit from Santa Claus when they come back to Washington after walking away from the president's Build Back Better plan before Christmas. And, well, there's no real direction right now on the way forward. So we get into it with Bill Hoagland, senior vice president at the Bipartisan Policy Center, spent years as director of the Senate Budget Committee. And we get to pick his brain from time to time. Bill, welcome back. Has your view on this matter, Build Back Better, the soft infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, evolved since Senator Joe Manchin said no. Is this effort dead? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back, uh, uh, Joe. Uh, has it evolved? It's, uh, basically, I think it was pretty clear from the outset that this was going to be a difficult lift in the Senate. I think Mr. Uh, Senator Manchin had made those uh, his points very clear. Uh, has it evolved? Um, I, I still think there is a slight possibility. I'm still in the 50-50 camp that uh, something still can get out of the Senate. Uh, It will be streamlined. It'll be cut back. It will be not nearly uh, uh, what uh, the progressives in the House want. And that may be a question as to whether or not the House can pass it. But you mentioned it in the outset. You mentioned it in earlier. This is an election year. We're moving into election year. And um, from my perspective, the, the House and the Senate both control is clearly at stake here. Uh, it's, uh, it's very possible that, uh, that there could be a change of control in the, in the Congress uh, next year. And I think that will uh, have a, a, a work, it will work to incentivize Democrats to try to get something done uh, as best they can from the agenda on the argument that um, if Republicans do take back control of the Congress, uh, next in 2023 and and try to undo some of that. At least the president uh, will be there to veto that legislation. So I think there's going to be a strong uh, push here on the part of the Democrats to get something out of the uh, 
out of the uh, Congress here. Uh, it, it, the Build Back Better is not finished. It's still in the Senate. Uh, we go to the second session of the 117th Congress. It can carry over. Yeah. Um, you see Chuck Schumer out, still bringing this up for a vote in the Senate? I, um, You know, that's a real good question. I can't see bringing up something you know it's going to fail. Right. Uh, and uh, So it's time to I'm rebrand gonna, this thing and rewrite this thing, it sounds like. Yes, and I think I think they'll try to – I still believe that uh, you will see work underway. Now, one thing that's going to be very difficult here is uh, – uh, you mentioned uh, Majority Leader Mr. Schumer. Yeah. He has indicated that the first thing he's going to do when we come back into session and the second session begins here on January 3rd, January 4th, mm-hmm. is that uh, he's not going to go to the Build Back Better. He's going to go back to the H.R. Uh, 1, which is the uh, – uh, for the People Act, the voter Voting reform rights. legislation. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and there I aren't votes that, for that either, Bill. Well, I raise that because I do think he's made it he's signaled pretty strongly that he's willing to change the rules of the Senate in such a way that it would allow for that, that legislation to be considered with a simple sure. majority, not 60. And I guess I raise this uh, on the argument that if that is his agenda and if he's successful, and there is some possibility that he could get around the filibuster by changing the rules specific to this type of legislation, I think that will only further uh, polarize the uh, Senate right. going forward and make his work even harder when it comes time to do Build Back Better. Well, it uh, could make life a lot more difficult uh, if and when Republicans take the majority, uh, you know, whether it's, it's this time around right. or, or later on. Anything that's passed under that mechanism can be quickly reversed, of course. And isn't that why Joe Manchin, again, is the obstacle there? He is the obstacle there. Uh, I think there are some thoughtful, uh, moderate uh, Democrats who realize that if you deal with the filibuster, you better be prepared. What goes around will come around, as you just mentioned, and be careful what you wish for, uh, as 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 they have found out as it relates to the changes that uh, Majority Leader Harry Reid did many years ago that set up a simple majority vote for appointments to the United States uh, uh, federal judges that yeah. later become then the Supreme Court. So, no, this is going to be, uh, I think there's going to be, I, I will point out one thing that, um, <laughs> hard to even talk about this, but the president has a requirement under the law, whether it happens or not, to submit his new budget. Uh, that should be in preparation <laughs> This right is the now. comedy portion of the program, Bill. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, <laughs> it is important that uh, something, and I guess what I'm getting at here is there is a possibility that uh, we just drop this whole thing and begin all over with a new budget resolution for fiscal year 23. Wow. And that they could get together and start working on putting that together uh, uh here in the, in, the, in the winter months when they're supposed to be putting together the budget for fiscal 23. And that's the also, sound of the Senate me, parliamentarian riding off into the sunset right now. <laughs> you just right. said that, Bill Oakland. And one, and one last thing I just want to mention is yeah. we have a continuing resolution that that's expires. Right. February 18th, Bill. What's going to happen that day? Well, that's why I want to get to it. The chair of that committee, Mr. Senator Leahy, and the ranking member, uh, Mr. Senator Shelby, are both retiring. They're going to want to finish this, and that CR could become a basis upon which some of the things that are not in Build Back Better could then be linked into that CR going forward. So uh, we've got a lot going on here, um, but uh, to your your fundamental question, I still think it's possible that something will get done 
on Build Back Better. Yeah, and I don't mean to be a pain or, or fool around here, but you know, as as you know uh, better than most, it's been a generation, I believe, since an actual budget that went through all the the full process, all the committees went through full debate yes. and was passed. Yes. I mean, it's yes. been it's it's another yes. life. Is the child tax credit the motivator here? Bill Hoagland, when, when progressives come back, you know, those checks aren't going out January 15th unless they pass something. Yeah. Well, I think it's absolutely correct. I think the child tax credit is the real motivating factor here. Remember, even if it is, if, if we don't extend the current child tax credit that was put in place back in the spring with the American Recovery Plan, there still is a child tax credit. It's just not as rich and it's not delivered in the same way that the current one is. So it's, to say that the child tax credit is going away is, is uh, false completely. However, to your point, yes, it is a rich uh, uh, enrichment of the child tax credit. That is a major motivating factor. I think that I think the, the factors that are really going to come down, if there is a final build back, but it will be the child tax credit, will be something on prescription drugs, and something in the energy area. On uh, Those would be the three things. Everything else uh, was set aside uh, for another day. And those would be uh, as a part of a, a single piece of legislation, not standalone bills? I think it's uh, they would be part of what I'm still thinking would be a, uh, a single bill, like uh, a reconciliation bill that would right. be passed with 51 votes, yes. Boy, yes. I, I, I'll tell you what, though. You, you already brought up the issue. Uh, this thing goes back to the House in a very different form yeah. than it passed. Yeah. You've got yeah. some very, I mean, I'll say angry progressives, very yes. upset about the way this has gone, and they feel burned. They were promised that this would happen if they voted for the infrastructure bill, and they all went home for Christmas with nothing. Yes. Well, as I, uh, Pramila Jipala, uh, the uh, leader of Pramila Jayapal, yes. Yeah, I, I have triplet difficulty saying her name, uh, as do. the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, has a has an article out today where she says the president should do a lot of this executive order. So I think part, part of the deal would be it'll come back, they'll hold their nose and vote for mm-hmm. whatever comes out of the Senate, but she's going to press, and they're going to press uh, to do whatever the president can do through executive order. I don't think there's a lot he can do through executive order that's in Build Back Better. I think it still requires legislation. But yeah. there will be some uh, behind the scenes. What can we do through executive order that we didn't get in Build Back Better? I'm glad you brought it up because she was saying that on uh, on, on the Sunday shows as well. Uh, after after seeing the, the incredible, I'm assuming historic number of executive orders that came out of the Trump administration, and I don't know if Joe Biden has a sharpie as big as Donald Trump here, but didn't <laughs> didn't we learn that that doesn't work? At least things can be reversed just as easily as they are implemented. Absolutely, uh, but remember what I said at the outset: uh, Mr. Biden has uh, President Biden has three more years. Uh, he's still, and and you get this stuff at least uh, put in place for for three more years if if you can do it through executive order. I, but I, I'm back to there are, there are real limitations on executive orders mm-hmm. at the margin and but I can see it as possibly a face saving device for the progressives to say we're going to vote for whatever we can get out of the Senate uh, but uh, uh, we're going to continue to work behind the scenes and by the way even as I said even if we if I can assure you they will there will be another I've been told by some of the Speaker Pelosi's staff that uh, there will be another budget resolution. Another, there's going to be another bite at this apple. Unfortunately, as you say, the poor parliamentarian is going to uh, oh, pull her hair out again. But, Just imagine uh, how the CBO is feeling right about now. Yeah. So Later, another drink. 
<laughs> Coming up, we're going to have more with Bill Hoagland of the Bipartisan Policy Center talk about how this child tax credit might be resolved and look at more on what to expect here inside the nation's capital in the new year. We're just getting started on a Tuesday. We'll check traffic and the markets on the way. Latest from Charlie Pellet coming straight up, and we'll be back with Bill Hoagland here on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So we don't have to talk about the debt ceiling again until after the midterms. I mean, what a gift. But as Bill Hoagland reminded us just a couple of moments ago, we do have to pay for government operations. And that money will run out on February 18th. It sort of seemed like a long ways off when they passed the latest CR, but maybe not. And Bill Hoagland is back with us, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Bill, it sounds like you've got a, a kind of a bigger idea going here, as, as you illustrated on the air, that this might not just be another kick-the-can scenario come February, but maybe a, a concerted effort to have a real budget, or maybe at least set the stage for one uh, later in the cycle. What's the best way to handle that in your view? You spent enough time on Capitol Hill to understand. You spent enough time... Uh, in the Senate to understand uh, how difficult this conversation can be. And we're going to be in the throes by then, mid to late February, of some actual midterm campaigning. How difficult will it be to, to keep the lights on? I, I think the uh, uh, you're right. This is a conundrum uh, as to how you put the various pieces together here. But uh, the president yesterday signed the uh, defense authorization bill. It's an authorization. It doesn't mm-hmm. fund the money. It's a, that's subject appropriation. Uh, right before they left, there was an indication that finally, because the president, because that had been sent to the president, he signed it yesterday. We now know the top line for uh, defense. That should kick the can uh, in a way that allows them to go ahead and now put together the final appropriation bills for the current fiscal year we're in, 2022. So I don't think this will be another. Uh, I, I think the negotiations now are underway for 22. Uh, to, to finish up the appropriation bill so there's no government shutdown or anything yeah. like that in, come February the 18th. And I believe what I guess I'm angling at here is there are many things that were in Build Back Better. I don't want to get into the weeds of this, but there are many things in Build Back Better that were normally would normally have been subject to appropriations. Uh, uh, and they pushed it over into Build Back Better and made it an entitlement. What I'm arguing for is that there's a way with we don't have what we call caps anymore for 20 for the current fiscal year. So a lot of those things that were in uh, Build Back Better that were would normally be subject to appropriate. That's a one year appropriation. Mm-hmm. They can put those things over into that CR and um, and at least uh, ameliorate some of the criticisms that the progressives have about the package and then do in the uh, in a uh, streamlined Build Back Better. 
the things they have to set some priorities here. But I, you mentioned it earlier. I think the child tax credit is the big thing mm-hmm. that people that the progressives want. I think they're going to have to give up on their ideas of expansion of Medicaid benefits or Medicare benefits or even the expansion of the Affordable Care Act benefits. They're going to have to uh, real set some priorities here. And uh, I do believe that this is that the. the there's an outside possibility that you can combine a streamlined build back better uh, bill and and a continuing resolution a appropriation bill excuse me for 22 that includes a number of those elements and uh, that that might be a solution come uh, February going forward it's a really interesting idea would that have to be reconciliation though or are we talking a bipartisan bill oh, you're talking first of all you're talking about a reconciliation um, a streamlined reconciliation bill yeah uh, a limited uh, bill, not not nearly uh, what uh, was of the 3.5 or even the 1.75 that people have been talking about. You're talking about a one bill that's that's that would be passed with a simple majority uh, in the Senate, and you're, then you're talking about the appropriation bill. That's a separate. That would be a separate. Technically, it could be 12 appropriation bills, but they probably right, will yeah. bundle it all up in one appropriation. But that one, that one, yes, that one could be subject to a filibuster in the Senate, but I doubt it because uh, uh, we're what uh, already we would be almost uh, six months into the fiscal year. Uh, let's go ahead and finish up the fiscal year with an appropriation bill. So, Is there a political uh, motivation it, to do that for Republicans in, in a midterm election year to, to effectively oh, appear to be helping oh, yeah. Democrats, even though it's likely for the better of the country? Well, yes, I think there is a motivation here for nothing else. Number one, you I think that it's a pox on both houses, if you, uh, or both parties, if you have a government shutdown. I don't think right. anybody wants that. Number two, um, Republicans uh, are on those appropriation uh, committees. They uh, will talk about them as earmarks. They, they, there are things in there that they can take back to their districts and say that they got for them. So there's mm-hmm. motivation there, particularly in the House, uh, for those members that are up in tight races to be able to say that uh, – that certain appropriations will benefit their particular community or their particular um, uh, community that they're, that they're uh, rep, uh, district they're representing. So yes, I think there's a real motivation to get this done. I would also, as I mentioned, also you mentioned it. It's an election year. Yes. Um, <laughs> there are a number of, of, of senators that are retiring on the Republican side, as uh, particularly. And uh, my guess is uh, that uh, you know I hate to say this. Uh, they don't have to worry about what they they can do. What's right for the country, not necessarily what's what's for their party by uh, by uh, moving forward. So uh, count on the retirees. Right. Sort of a <laughs> mantra for the country right now. In a lot of ways, we yeah. we only have a minute left, Bill. What's your read on the midterms right now from from your perch at the Bipartisan Policy Center? Do you see Capitol Hill uh, as a whole going to the Republican Party, or might we have a split where Dems lose the House, keep the Senate? Right now, I would say that I think that, it's, that the probability is very high that the House will switch. I think the Senate is still likely to – it's going to be a fit, It's going to be very – there's 10 races in the Senate yeah. that are really up and close. Uh, my guess is right now uh, – I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going I to say it. that it's possible that both the House and Senate will switch. You heard it from Bill Hoagland. We'll have a chance to ask him again as we get closer from the Bipartisan Policy Center. Bill, thanks for all your insights this year, and Happy New Year. We'll talk with Bill Ferry's Foreign Policy next on Sound On. This is Bloomberg.
Welcome back to Bill Ferry. It's a pleasure to bring Bill back. He leads our national security team here in Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. Bill, welcome back to Sound On. Hey, Joe. Thanks a lot for having me. Good to be here. We spent an enormous amount of time talking about President Biden's economic agenda over the past year, the accomplishments and discord within the Democratic Party, domestic issues. But it's actually been a very important year, a critical one for geopolitics and for national security. And you've been a very busy guy, beginning with the end of America's longest war, add rising tensions with two of our biggest adversaries. And there's a lot to consider about 21 and the new year that we're rolling into. Bill, I'd like to start with Afghanistan. It's off the front pages, but there are major problems to manage there. And I wonder how long you think it'll take to fully understand the repercussions of our withdrawal. Right, Joe. So, you know, as you remember, President Biden took office and he he had inherited this peace agreement that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban and uh, which called for the full American withdrawal by I think it was May at the time. And he did announce in April, as we started wondering, you know, are are we going to stick with that plan? He announced uh, that he would delay it a little bit further. Uh, And they they gave themselves, I think, an extra three or four months to to try to get on top of uh, the the withdrawal and try to get uh, people out of the country. And it ended up being one of the real black eyes, I think, for this administration when you uh, when you look at what's happened over the past year. And it was a surprising turn of events because, as you remember, President Biden you know, he was uh, the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Right. He really came in himself and a team steeped in foreign policy. And uh, and that withdrawal really kind of, I think it shocked a lot of allies. I think it shocked a lot of Americans. We had the tragedy of, of 13 service members killed there at the very end. And it's still this ongoing issue that, as you said, has fallen off the front pages, so to speak. But uh, there are still uh, people who worked with the U.S., uh, military during our 20 years there, uh, who are still trying to get out. Uh, the, the administration says that they've gotten all the Americans out, um, but the economy there is really in free fall. The Taliban have, have taken control, but don't have access to a lot of the uh, the central bank reserves, a lot of the assets that the previous uh, civilian governments had built up. Mm-hmm. And there's a real question about how bad uh, a famine and the humanitarian disaster there will be uh, this winter. I mean, we're not talking about, we're not projecting into the future, we're talking about right now. The urgency uh, surrounding the withdrawal, those weeks when we were in the midst of the airlift, trying to get girls and women out of country, trying to protect uh, our allies, the interpreters, the drivers who helped us wage war, for the better part of 20 years, that has died down, Bill. I just wonder now, is this more about a risk to our credibility or a risk to our security in the new year? Well, I think there's a little bit of both. I think the risk to our credibility, I mean, I think we've seen some damage to the credibility, uh, even with our allies on how how rushed that withdrawal was and how, uh, how poorly the U.S. did in terms of predicting that yes. Taliban takeover. A lot of people thought, listen, a year from now, two years from now, the Taliban will keep fighting, and, and they, they'll have a, a chance against this uh, Afghan government. But nobody said it was going to be, uh, you know, the middle of August that you would have Taliban retaking Kabul. Um, and then the withdrawal that was done, you had even American allies saying, please, let's extend this deadline. Let's go into September, October. Uh, let's get to the winter. And, uh, it, and the U.S. held firm on that. And I think they, they said that, you know, their view was we have to get out now. 
uh, we have uh, basically a working agreement with the Taliban that will fall apart if we don't, and and in that case, we'll be at war. Um, but then I think you know the uh, the threat picture is very murky right now. Even before the U.S. left, you had uh, Al Qaeda uh, cells that were operating in Afghanistan. They were fighting the Taliban. They were fighting the Americans. Right. And the U.S. priority, I think, is to make sure that uh, al-Qaeda and any other terrorist groups, including uh, former remnants of ISIS, aren't able to rebuild there the way al-Qaeda did in the 1990s and ultimately struck us with the 2001 terror attacks. And that is an ongoing fight. And the U.S., uh, I think, is struggling to convince uh, I think the administration is struggling to convince Republicans and other allies that we have the ability to keep those groups down. So the whole question, the conversation about Afghanistan becoming a staging ground for terror against the U.S. has, has really yet to be answered. It has yet to be answered. That's right. I think uh, I, I think the U.S. does have some what they call over the horizon capabilities. We do have an ability to go strike uh, sure. and attack. You know, if we see a camp there, um, but. In terms of the ability of the groups there to hit U.S. interests, you know, in the United States or elsewhere, I don't think we've seen whether that's possible yet. I think it's more the fear that as Afghanistan falls into more chaos, as the economy crumbles further, that that will be a ripe uh, breeding ground for, for international terrorism again. I haven't heard the term over the horizon for a couple of months, Bill. Russia knows a lot about leaving Afghanistan in a position of weakness. How did our departure, if at all, impact our relationship with Moscow? You know, there's uh, there's a lot of different ways to read that. I, I think, you know, the Russians, uh, the Russians and the Chinese and other countries that are basically in that periphery, uh, I think they in some ways benefited from that American presence. Uh, and, you know, with the Americans keeping a lid a bit on, on the terrorism there and some of the fighting, that said, I think they all viewed it uh, as a as a geopolitical win to see the U.S. Um, getting uh, beat up uh, sure. that way. And eager the, to the fill the vacuum, and, and right? I mean, out. Vladimir Putin was eager to fill eager, the vacuum when we left. Eager to, yes, eager to fill that vacuum. I think a lot of other countries have interest there, uh, you know. For, for the U.S. to have a, a, such a big presence in Afghanistan, that was, you know, an advantage for us to look in a little bit on things in China and Russia and the former Soviet states there that, uh, that are still allied with, with Russia. Um, and, and I think they just, they, I think there was, you know, I don't know if it would be schadenfreude, but, uh, you know, there was, they, they were happy uh, in some ways to see the U.S. take a bruise. Um, and, you know, give them a little bit more of a buffer space. And I think there's, you know, you can read into whether the, the American withdrawal basically at all costs was was a lesson that uh, U.S. adversaries are going to try to see if it carries over to places like uh, Taiwan, to uh, to Ukraine, the, the, the back and forth we see now between NATO, Russia, uh, the United States and Ukraine. Bill, Vladimir Putin has gotten more face time with President Biden than most world leaders can claim. Yeah, I don't think anyone would have thought that uh, most of the bandwidth would have been taken by Vladimir Putin and, and Joe Biden's first year. But I think it, it says a lot about Putin's ability to dominate the conversation and to and to dominate the agenda, When especially when the Biden administration keeps saying they want to look towards China, they want to move the focus to Asia. You keep getting uh, you have to keep turning your head back to what's going on with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, he knows how to play his cards very well. 
I don't think we. Uh, I, I don't think the U.S. could argue that it's gotten a whole lot uh, besides uh, crisis management from the relationship with Putin. Now, um, when Russia built up troops in Ukraine in the spring, that was really what what prompted the Biden administration and the, and the president to reach out and have that first phone call with uh, with Vladimir Putin. Uh, I, I think there's few things Putin likes more than than being taken seriously on the world stage. Um, you know, Russia is is. It is in no means uh, having its glory days right now, but it still has a tremendous amount of influence. It yeah. always gets a seat at the table. And we're seeing that now. Uh, after there was not a lot achieved at the first phone call and the first summit, uh, Putin has, has rebuilt his forces again in Ukraine. And, and we're heading into the new year with people talking about the prospect of war. Well, so let's talk about that. The last time uh, President Biden and Vladimir Putin met by video conference, Ukraine was the big topic. It was really driving the news at that point, as we saw, gosh, in excess of 100,000 Russian troops amassed along the border. We understand that in some cases they were even strafing. They were they were running drills to carve a path for a potential invasion. But I wonder what you think about this, Bill. Are threats to Ukraine by Vladimir Putin real or an opportunity to get leverage and, and get a sit down meeting with someone like Joe Biden? I think there's I think there's both aspects to this. I think uh, I think Putin and uh, and the Russian leadership has, has long been very alarmed at, you know, the, the West growing ties with Ukraine. I think they want to put a stop to that right away. I, I think they view Ukraine falling uh, too much into the Western orbit as basically an huh. existential threat. They do not want they have NATO troops on the Russian border in other countries. But yes. uh, I think Ukraine culturally has uh, I, I think there's a strong pull there for uh, for many Russians. And they just do not want to see U.S. or NATO troops drilling in Ukraine regularly. And they don't want to see. Uh, Ukraine basically trying to take back either Crimea or even these uh, contested parts of the Donbass region now. Is there a um, difference, Bill, when we Vladimir talk about Putin. the U.S. versus NATO? Is there a concern about our bilateral relationship or that Ukraine someday joins the alliance? You know, I don't think uh, I don't think anyone was seriously considering having Ukraine join NATO. No. Uh, and I think that has not really been on the table for a long time. I think there was always talk about how can we work with them more? How can they? How can we have them be a, a a partner, but not a full alliance member? And I think Russia wants to put a stop to that as well. They would like to see, uh, they would like to see, you know, the end of uh, U.S. shipments of of arms, even if they're arguably defensive arms to Ukraine. They want a, a very compliant uh, and malleable Ukraine on their border. Um, that is something that they can have more control of. And I think the West is. Is wants to draw the line at we're we're not going to totally leave, but NATO uh, Ukraine is not going to be a NATO member the way uh, the way Poland or or the Baltic states are. But is Russia prepared to go to war over it? So I, I think well, arguably Russia already has been you know in a conflict with Ukraine now since 2014 when it when it uh, took over Crimea and annexed and and then moved. Uh, some covert forces into the Donbas region. I mean, that's still a, a, an active conflict. I, I don't think Vladimir Putin wants to retake Kiev and, and have tr his troops trying to hold the whole country. I think he wants to have a little periphery where there's a, a, a shifting battle lines, shifting lines of control. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, the Russian military is far more 
powerful than than anything Ukraine could field at this point. Yeah. Um, but I think he wants to keep. Uh, I think he wants to keep the the, the water boiling with with Ukraine a bit, um, and and keep their government a little bit uh, weakened and undercut um, by what he's able to do in other parts of their country. But I don't think he wants to absorb the rest of Ukraine the way he has uh, tried to absorb Crimea. Then there's President Xi. Bill Ferries is Russia or mm. China the greater threat to the U.S. as we move into the new year? Well, I think you know China is China is the issue that's always on medium boil now for the Biden administration, <laughs> and I think for the U.S. it okay. is always there. Sometimes the heat will get turned up, sometimes it will get turned down, but that is that's going to be the constant. Whereas other issues, whether it's whether it's Russia, Ukraine, or whether the it's the Iran nuclear deal, all these other things uh, may flare up and then and then uh, burn out. Uh, China's going to be the constant. And I think longer term, the U.S. has recognized the real economic uh, and security challenge is probably going to be coming from China. Um, they don't have the nuclear arsenal that Russia has, uh, but they have, particularly in their region, uh, where they see themselves as the main power, they want to have a stronger foothold. So we've seen what happened in, in Hong Kong. They are effectively eroding a lot of the rights there. Uh, they're making more advances on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Xi in 2022 uh, will be going after his, his third term as, uh, as Communist Party chairman. And I think he wants to make sure that goes very smoothly. So I, I don't think there's a risk of a, of a big conflict uh, in the immediate, on the immediate horizon. Um, I think Xi has his, his priorities. He, he doesn't want to spark a, a war. Um, he wants to keep COVID under control. But that's going to be the main the main challenge. But like I said, it's it's always going to be it's going to be this medium boil thing that's, that's always on the stove. You always have to tend to it, and uh, and it's going to take a lot of work. And I think the Biden administration um, came into office knowing that. But I think uh, living it and figuring out the policies, whether it's trade, whether it's Taiwan, I think that um, they found that to be very difficult. We're boycotting the Olympics or half boycotting the Olympics, at least in terms of government officials. Do you? Do you see a scenario in 2022 in which Biden and Xi actually sit down in the same room to meet? I think that's going to depend almost entirely on President Xi. He hasn't left the country um, in well over, I think, well over two years now. I know it's 600, 700 days because of COVID um, and also because he's really trying to cement this legacy there politically. And, uh, you know, in a country like China, the politics, it really is uh, in a lot of ways all local. Mm. I think the biggest one of the biggest threats to him, and I think the Olympics are part of that, is the degree to which they can maintain this COVID zero policy um, amid the Delta variant, amid Omicron. I think it will be a, it'll be a very bad look for Xi Jinping if uh, if COVID really takes off and, and, and rips through uh, a big swath of China. And particularly if you see uh, if you see a lot of uh, people uh, dying from that, it's, it's not clear that the Sinovac vaccine is as effective as other vaccines in, in fighting the different variants. And I think she's going to keep a tight lid on things. And he's not going to want to go out and, and meet people uh, uh, if there's any risk that he's going to be or he, his team would be bringing back something. So um, I think if we're talking about a Biden-Chi thing, it, it's probably later in 2022. We're going to be past the Olympics. We mm-hmm. might be past that uh, Communist Party chairmanship meeting. Bill, I'm always concerned about the stories that we're not thinking of, and I know you certainly are as one of the leaders in our newsroom. What's the story that keeps you up at night? What's the story that surprises everybody when it comes to national security, geopolitics, the stuff that's difficult to prepare for? 
I think I've been very surprised by how little we've heard from North Korea this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't know if that is also a COVID-related issue. Um, you know, they're always, they're always very secretive, so it's, it's hard to know what's going on there. But um, in, listen, in a couple of days, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un always gives a, a January 1st uh, speech that um, has often been used to uh, you know, launch, launch a new uh, ICBM or something like that. But I think the Biden administration has gotten a lucky path so far that North Korea hasn't been more active. Um, there's a lot on the president's plate, and I don't think he wants that. And I think the big, the, another big question out there is what happens with Iran? Um, they've been advancing their nuclear program very quickly. Um, I think the Israelis are losing a lot of patience with the slow pace of the, uh, the Iran nuclear talks. And so you head into 22 wondering, you know, will will the Israelis be so tired of uh, of waiting and watching Iran build up their uh, their enriched uh, stockpile of uranium that they take a proactive strike uh, on on facilities that sparks more of a regional conflict. Bill Ferries, national security team leader here at Bloomberg News in our Washington bureau. Many thanks for the insights, Bill. It's been a heck of a year. Thanks for having me, Joe. Best wishes for the new year. Happy New Year. It's been a long year. Even when it feels like the time is flying here on the fastest hour in politics. So thanks to the Bills today, Hoagland and Ferries. And we'll get back together here tomorrow to talk about one of the biggest unresolved issues for the Biden administration after Build Back Better. That would be the Fed. Three open seats for President Biden to fill. Most of us thought it would be done by now. You might remember Brian Deese saying... On this program last month, an announcement was likely in early December. Now appears unlikely till early January. If that, we'll talk about who's on the short list, what option the president has, as he's certainly thinking about this in Delaware this week. Chief Economist for the Americas at Natixis, Joe Lavornia, will be with us, former Chief Economist of the National Economic Council. We'll have Rick and Jeannie with us, too. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.